so to me, therapists are consultants and we have a lot of experience in certain realms. I've sat with people who've wanted to kill themselves. I've sat with people while they were dissociating. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Health Careers with Dr. Martin, a podcast show that pulls back the curtain on what a career in health and wellness is really like. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Martin. Is a career in mental health of interest to you? If so, this is a great episode where we get to talk to a psychologist and learn how she helps people with some of their psychosocial and mental challenges. Our guest is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. She's a psychologist out of Arkansas in private practice. And it's a great episode where she talks about her career, but also a little bit about her different techniques of therapy and how she approaches how she helps patients. So there's a lot of wonderful golden nuggets in this episode. So I'm very fortunate, very lucky that she was able to join us on this podcast. Dr. Rutherford is not only a talented therapist, but she is also a blogger. She has a blog post. She has a podcast. So that's where we also connected as well. And she's also an author. She recently wrote a book to help patients who are struggling with this particular type of depression. So please tune in. There's a lot of wonderful things in this episode I think you'll like. If this podcast is interesting to you, please, I would love to hear back from you. Check out my website, drop your email, send me an email, DM me on my social media, or just you know, rate, like, and comment on whatever podcast directory you listen to. That will help bring attention to others who are interested or potentially interested in such content. And so that'd be very helpful. So without further ado, let's jump into this episode. So hello, everybody. Welcome. Today, I have a wonderful guest, Dr. Margaret Rutherford. How are you, Dr. Rutherford or Margaret? Thank you. Yes. (laughs) We're going to call each other Dr. Doctor all day. (laughs) We don't want that. Too serious. No, my Lord, no. Margaret, to get things going, do you mind please providing a little bit bio of, of your background? Sure. I have a kind of a strange route to becoming a clinical psychologist. I was a French major in college, and but I loved music and I really wanted to be a musician. And so it turns out that in Dallas, when I moved there, I became a jingle singer. And that's someone who sings radio and television commercials. Right. I learned, I mean, I loved being a musician, but I learned that lifestyle itself and never quite knowing how much you were going to make. And, you know, some, some months would be windfalls and other months would be pretty scarce, scarce, I guess. So I didn't particularly like that. And so I, and for other reasons that that life, it's just a tough lifestyle. And I had started volunteering at the battered women's shelter in Dallas and I loved it. And so I heard about this thing called music therapy And I ended up pouring every amount of all the money I had in the world. I gave to Southern Methodist University uh, that first year and got a, well, it took me two and a half years to get a degree in music therapy. But then my last internship for music therapy was in a psych hospital. And I watched the psychologist there. I had been in therapy myself for many years at that point. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. This is what I want to do. So I went back to school for a whole nother year, got my psychology hours that I needed to even just be interviewed. And lo and behold, 
several programs let me in. I think I was a curiosity (laughs) between that. And then, so it literally, Richard, took me nine years from the time I said, no, I don't want to do music. I love music, but I've got to leave it to seeing my first patient in private practice. It took me nine years. It was a, so that was, I didn't get my PhD until I was 38 years old. That's great information. Wow. What exactly is your job title and what do you do? I'm a clinical psychologist. In graduate school, we learned that a psychologist really is an agent of change. Since I got PhD, I've done all my work in private practice. Well, I say that I also worked at the community care clinic here. I worked in the school system for a while. I worked running a, a group for a hospital. You do therapy, you do assessment, you do consultation, you can go into neuropsychology. You can, I mean, the, the field is vast. And what are the usual steps? I know you took a little circuitous route, but what are the usual steps to get to to achieve your pers- professional sure. degree? To be called actually a psychologist, you do have to have PhD or PsyD or something like that after your name. And there several programs require a master's in psychology. The one I did, did went to did not, interestingly enough, but those are probably few and far between. And so you need, most people would say you need a master's in psychology and then you go on for a PhD in psychology, or that could be clinical psychology, counseling psychology, school psychology, I mean, it could be a lot of different specialties. Got it. And in one sentence or two, what's the best part of your profession? Mm. I love learning from the struggles of other people. I don't love their struggles, but there is so much wisdom that I learn from people who, um, and I feel like I'm a conduit between the people that I saw and learned from and the people who are sitting in front of me that day. So that process of guiding and learning and having empathy and providing a safe place for people to heal. What misconceptions do people have about your profession? Oh, I think that people, one, think we're going to somehow take control over their lives, that we're going to tell them what to do, and definitely we're not. I think we also, every program I've ever been to the last decade has talked about evidence-based techniques, and a lot of things are very, have great research that this particular technique works for this particular problem. But, and this is what makes therapy a little strange for some people, there is an art, because All the meta-analyses will also show that the relationship between the therapist and the client is one of the most important factors, if not the most important factor, of choosing a a psychiatrist or a therapist, that you want to have that relationship that is there for you, nurturing, caring, sometimes confronting gently, but that is a really important thing. and, And so it's very important to choose someone that you really trust. You mentioned earlier that, or alluded to, that there's other professions that you may work with. What are those? Oh, gosh. I work with primary care physicians. I work with OBGYNs, oncologists, infectious disease doctors, lawyers. Gosh, my referral sources are are pretty large. And of course, I do not have a specific direction. I see see adults and, and I see a lot of trauma victims. But like, I don't see only anxiety people or only, you know, trauma. So a lot of times, you know, it is the most honorable thing that can happen to me or honoring thing is when someone sends me a friend or a loved one. Well, thank you. That's kind of a quick summary of a little bit of what you're doing and, and your occupation, and your career. So thanks, Margaret, for jumping into there. If you don't mind, I'd like to ask a little bit more specific questions about your profession, your career. 
yeah. as a psychologist. You talked that you you mentioned you talk mostly with adults, trauma victims. Mm-hmm. What what niche do you usually work with? Is it mostly people who go through depression, anxiety? What is the type of patients that you're usually dealing with as a psychologist? Well, you can choose. I mean, I when I was in school, I did rotations with children, I did rotations with teenagers, I did geriatric rotations. I have when I first started, I did work with teens and families, whole families, because I was trained at the Southwest Family Institute in Dallas. You know, you can be known for working with people in their 20s or people in their 40s, or you you can establish whatever niche you want. Given the fact that I live in Northwest Arkansas and not where I got trained in Dallas, I've, I've had a more generalized practice because, you know, it's just not large enough to maintain a practice where you only have one kind of patient. I did my dissertation, for example, on conversion disorders or, or pseudo-seizures specifically, and if I had stayed in Dallas, I had been offered a job at Parkland Hospital on their epilepsy unit. And my whole career would have been different because I probably would have continued that research and that work where Got there was it. actually a lot of trauma. The thing that I have wanted to be known for really is my trauma work as well as I love doing relationship work. And because uh, I was trained in the family model at Southwest Family Institute, and I'm very interested in that kind of systemic thinking. So you can go out there and say, I want to be an expert in X, Y, or Z. And, or, and again, there's all people have all kinds of assessment styles and things they choose that they want to do. It just never appealed to me. Got it. And so your current practice now is a little bit more generalized, and it's partly because a little bit on the environment that you're working with. And the true, but also your own skills. There are some people who who would rather not work with trauma. When I did a child rotation, for example, I I had much harder time handling my own feelings about mm. these children who were so abused. I did not have children of my own at the time. I didn't feel particularly comfortable with kids. I do now. So I think that you know, if if someone moved to a town of of 50,000 people and only saw people with a certain kind of rare disorder. So yes, it's mandated that. When you're dealing with patients, how are you actually helping them? Are you, is it typically like we imagine people are, you have them come to your office and they sit on a couch and you're sitting on a chair and you're not really making eye contact with them or you could, I mean, how for you, what is the process that you're working with with these patients? So when the student listens to it, they get an idea. This is what my career would be like. That that you're describing more of what's called a psychoanalytic kind of method. I'm kind of known for a very directional approach. I had a young girl come to me one time and she'd been very successfully to another therapist. She said she, the therapy had helped her. And I said, well, just out of curiosity, why didn't you go back? And she said to me, well, you know, you know, that unconditional positive regard thing that, you know, one of the therapists call you always have this unconditional positive regard for your patients. I said, yes. She said, I heard you don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) And I went, oh, well, I'm not sure how to take that, but okay. The newer models of therapy, you never want to, you, you never want to talk about yourself all the time. That's not what a therapist does. You know, this is what I did with my life. And so this is what you should do with your right, right. No, no, no. It's you, you have learned how to listen for not only what people are saying, but what they are not saying. When I think what emotions they are able to express, what emotions they're not able to express, 
what kind of thinking do they have? Is it rational or does it tend to be more irrational? What is the depth of their mental illness? Do they have a mild depression, a severe depression? Do they have a cyclic disorder? So you're diagnosing all at the same time that you're trying to help someone figure out what exactly is wrong. Some people walk in and they say, I'm really depressed. So some people kind of walk in and they've done their homework. Other people are clueless about what's going on. And they don't even know they're having a panic attack when they're, and so you have to, some of it is psychoeducational where you want to say, well, you know, let's look at this and this is what you have. But then again, you, you want to, I, what I do in therapy is I say, what, so what goals do you have? You know, how would you know you were better and how can I help you reach those goals? And so we set, oh, I mean, I don't write them down, but uh, I'm sure there's some therapists who do. So you help the patient kind of be able to visualize where they want to go. Maybe they want to stop having nightmares. Maybe they have PTSD. Maybe they, you know, what technique would best be suited? And this is when you have to know these evidence-based theories. Do you do that technique? If you don't, refer them to somebody that does. You know, they will do better with that person than they would you. If you have the skills to see them, then you say, well, this is what I, this is what is in my skill set to help you. Does that seem like a good fit? And all the time they are, and you are assessing, can we build this? Do you trust me? Margaret, when you're seeing patients, are you, I mean, now we're in kind of this COVID pandemic. Are you seeing most of them, you know, uh, in a video screen, Zoom session, or are you seeing them in an office and you're kind of facing each other? What kind of, what's the environment in which you work nowadays? Yeah, pre-pandemic, I have, I'm not, I'm a solo practitioner, which is fairly unusual in these times. Most people have formed groups, but so you can be, you can do that still. And I, but I have my own little, I, you know, I've rented for years and then bought my own little house. And people come in and one or two or three at a time and, and, you know, I do it on the hour. And so it's a busy day. How many people are you seeing a day? Well, (laughs) I have seen eight eight to nine at my heyday. I try not to see that many because I'm older and my, and I get more tired. I think most people probably see five or six people a day. I, I work now four days a week and see about six people a day. And pre-pandemic, that was all face-to-face. I would still love that to be the case because sometimes people need a good hug. Sometimes people need, you know, it's, you know, even you get information. I'm not being funny, really, when I say this. You get so much information from their nonverbal behavior that it's much harder to pick up via teletherapy. But I, I have been in teletherapy since March. I actually have some patients who've told me they like it better. Is it more convenient? But they feel less anxious. It's much, I find it to be much harder work for the therapist to make sure that I'm conveying to them that, you know, I'm noticing that I'm reaching out emotionally and it's just much harder over a screen. So far, I've only had one patient say, I just don't think I can do this. That was fine. And I, I tried to send her to somebody that I thought was probably doing live therapy. What is your typical day like? When do you get started? When do you end? So I usually get up in the morning. Now I I have a 26 year old now, but he's I used to get up and fix him breakfast and get him off to school. And but the typical days I get up and exercise. I get up and walk, or I work out, or I do Pilates, or I do something to keep my body in shape. And then right now, I, I right where I'm sitting, I see people. You know, I also again I mentioned I'm on social media. 
when my son left for college, I started blogging. And then I started a podcast in 2016, which is actually, knock on wood, highly popular. That's uh, how we met. Yeah, that's how we met. So I love doing that. I produce them all myself. I do not edit them. So I will also get up in the morning sometimes and write or produce podcasts. I do that on the weekend. It takes a lot of hours. So I, I really like the variety. I mean, I love seeing patients still. And yet I, I like the variety of doing the, the, the social media things as well. Hear from people from all over the world. From, well, from New York, for example. And from New York. <laughs> You said some misconceptions people have about your profession is that they think that you might be controlling them. Could you kind of, is that really a real, uh, are there other misconceptions people have? Well, a lot of the reason why people say they, they would never darken the door of a therapist is that I, you just need to solve your problems by yourself. Mm. You know, as if getting another perspective wouldn't be helpful. I mean, I, you know, I, I have fixed a few plumbing problems in my lifetime, but you know, when my plumbing goes out, I have to call a plumber. Yeah. You know, when I got divorced, I didn't I didn't serve as my own lawyer. I got a lawyer. So to me, therapists are consultants and we have a lot of experience in certain realms. I've sat with people who've wanted to kill themselves. I've sat with people while they had while they were dissociating. I've I've sat with people you know, while they were bickering and couldn't find their way out of a fight, and I managed to guide them in a different direction. I'm consulting. The people have to solve the problem, not me. I can help define the problem. I can help identify what might be a way that you could could better your life and feel healthier. But you have to do it, <laughs> not me. I mean, if you screw up your plumbing again, the same way you screwed it up before, you have to call the plumber back. It is a, it's a different kind of relationship than you have with anyone because it is the, the energy goes one way and the energy goes toward the patient. Help them realize some things that may, they may not know are really going on to help them. So it is about things that we're not as aware of. What is the most rewarding part of your job? It is such an honor, Richard, for someone to reveal some of their dark, darkest experiences whether it was something they did themselves mm-hmm. and they made a mistake or whether it's something that was done to them and they've carried shame about it for years. It is such an honor to be the person that is there listening, that they trust enough to let this these emotions be released. And I just walk away from those kinds of sessions and they're frequent. Just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to to have those people do that. And again, it does not give me power over them. It gives them a place to safely express that. Mm-hmm. And some people feel, even say to me, can I leave it with you? Mm. Say, of course, leave it with me. Go back to your life and we'll come back to it in the next session. And that's what they do. So they almost kind of see me as a space. <laughs> that's awesome. Like a room, like a space instead of a, you know, well, I'm a person too, but I think you get my yeah, yeah. So it's it's that is the major major benefit of it. It's it's just a I don't know another word except pri- well privilege. It's a privilege. What is the least favorite part of your job then? <laughs> Progress notes, <laughs> insurance, and a lot of people who are drawn to my field aren't really good, very good business people. They're you know they they've got a lot of empathy and they you know they're 
they love to talk about relationships, but sometimes the business aspect of things. So you have to be careful. If that's not a, a quality in you, that's you, you do need an office manager or somebody to help you with that. Uh, right. Progress notes are just, you know, there's a form, you have to do them. And insurance is a pain in the neck. You know, that's a, and a, and a lot of actually therapists don't take insurance anymore, which is kind of interesting. We fought really hard to get it. And now there are a lot of therapists that do not take it. So that's, you know, can drive up the cost. Changing things a little bit, talking about your profession and its future outlook. What do you think the outlook is like for your profession as a whole? I think there's so much going on about the neurobiology, depression, and the neurophysiology. Actually, I, I did a recent interview with Terry Cheney, who's got bipolar disorder, and she said she thinks it should depression should be called, let me see if I the neuropsycho immunological disease. Yeah, neuropsychoimmunology, <laughs> something like that. Um, because there's so tongue twister. Yeah. Because they're I mean they're looking at gut issues. They're looking at opioid receptors. They're looking at neural pathway reformation, things like ketamine infusions and uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. All of this is beginning to give us new techniques. These are in the field of mostly depression and bipolar disorder. I just put on my on my podcast something that is a device with your Apple Watch. It's a it's a app that actually keeps you from having or prevents you from having PTSD nightmares. It wakes you up. It learns your sleep cycle and it it does something pings or I don't know what it does when it senses that you're about to go into that sleep cycle again and then it it helps it first it wakes you up, but then it doesn't do that anymore because it's learning your sleep cycle. I think that technology is fascinating. And there's things like neurofeedback and there's so much going on that I just, it's, it's, it's really exciting. Margaret, what type of students do you think best flourish in this career? Curious, curious people. I think you have to have a lot of interest and curiosity about what's going on. You have to think systemically. I did not go to medical school, <laughs> you know, that I remember. And so you you have to, however, be aware of some basic medical issues, endocrine disorders, for example, diabetes. I mean, uh, these things have some psychological counterparts that is important for you to, be, to recognize. So I, I think you, you have to think, you have to be good with people. Okay. You have to, and all kinds of people. I, I think curiosity, systemic thinking, and openness to a lot of different kinds of problems. And of course, now now we've got to mention the ethnic and cultural aspects. You know, I'm a 60-something-year-old white woman from the South. And so I have to, when I have another ethnicity or race in front of me, we have to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And I have to try to make 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 sure whether it's through training or whether it's through just learning from them. Training, of course, is wonderful to try to understand a whole another culture's way of looking at things, and um, and so that is that's fascinating in and of itself. And some people, you know, diversity and that kind of work is what they specialize in. Very early on in in the interview here, we talked about how you got started, and I want to revisit that a little bit. What were you like as a student in high school and college? Oh, I was very studious. My roommate said, everybody called me, oh, you were, you were with that girl who studies all the time. 
a bit nerdy? Well, I was a theater and music person, so I thought I was pretty cool. I was just a, I just um, thought, you know, I did a lot of theater. I did a lot of singing. And so I was either practicing music or I was studying or I had a pretty serious boyfriend back then too. So I, I loved college. I was Phi Beta Kappa, which was great. But, you know, the thing about Phi Beta Kappa that you have to realize is that if when I move someplace new, Phi Beta Kappa is can find me automatically. Really? This is way before cell phones, right? <laughs> and an email. I mean, they knew I'd moved and were asking wow. for them, which I've never given them any. But anyway, but I also love to travel. And I went to Europe after I got my French degree and lived in Switzerland and in France for a while. And then came back still bound, bent, and determined to have a degree in music. I never actually got a degree in music. I got mm-hmm. a course in music therapy. So I, you know, I never even thought about being a psychologist. My first therapy, my personal therapy was in my early 20s and was very helpful to me. But she had had a near-death experience and she'd become a psychologist because of that. And it was she was a fascinating therapist. Reflecting back, what would you have done differently? Since your podcast is really geared towards students, I think you really have to look at the array of degrees there are now. Mm-hmm. That there are not easier paths to becoming a mental health professional, different paths. There's LPC, licensed professional counselor. You can become a marriage and family therapist. If 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 families and and couples are really what you want to see the most, you can become a licensed clinical social worker. All those degrees can be in private practice and can receive insurance. So, uh, and there's a PsyD, a doctor of psychology, a PhD is a doctor in philosophy and a PsyD, you do a dissertation, but you don't have to do original research. You know, there are a lot of ways of approaching this now. And because I'm really perfectionistic myself, sometimes to a fault, I was bound and determined to get a PhD, but, and that has given me, you know, that is a pathway that can lead in lots of directions. You can teach you can do assessment. You, I mean, you can do a lot of things with it. And yet there, there are other ways of getting there that just will suit. So if you're thinking about getting into the mental health profession, I would look into all those licensures and see what best fits your life, your pocketbook, frankly, mm-hmm. or, you know, where could you get scholarships where, you know, all that kind of thing. So there are just a lot of pathways to go. You mentioned being a perfectionist. Yeah. And you wrote a book. <laughs> called the hidden perfectly uh, hidden depression perfectly hidden depression and it came out in november of 2019 if i recall that's correct some some great testimonials one was this book can and will save lives and sometimes it's about asking for help isn't a sign of weakness but a sign of strength mm-hmm. why'd you write this book this book found me actually i was writing a book my normal weekly blog post and i was thinking about some of the people that i see have seen in the past that I would never have diagnosed with depression. And so when they walked in, they looked happy, engaged, successful, tired, overworked, uh, usually some anxiety or worry. And I would give them a diagnosis of anxiety or not give them a diagnosis at all. But what I learned through the years was that that was wrong. That what I noticed was these were also people who could not express painful emotion. They would look at me, Richard, with this, smiley face and talk to me about really awful things happening to them. They'd laugh and say, oh, you know, my mom used to do that to me or ha ha ha. And that's the key. 
And that's when I knew that I needed to help them unwrap that and learn how to express those emotions. So I wrote a post called The Perfectly Hidden Depressed Person, Are You One? And it went viral. And I never had a post go viral before. Hmm. I was writing for the Huffington Post at the time. And I put it on there. And I'd forgotten that I'd left my email on the bottom. And I got hundreds of emails. So I started looking around. This was 2014. I started looking around. And of course, I found Brene Brown's work. I can't believe I didn't know it before, but I didn't. And she talks about you know, perfectionism and shame and vulnerability. And that's what her and her research is all on that. Wonderful. I mean, she's prolific and she's helped millions of people. She stopped. She said it can be linked to depression, perfectionism. But she stopped in saying it can be something that actually hides it or she doesn't directly link perfectionism and depression that I could find except just by not as directly as I thought it belonged, because I actually think that a certain kind of destructive perfectionism is what it's known in the biz. Maladaptive perfectionism can actually hide or cloak what is actually depression underneath. It's just, it's not going to fit the criteria for classic depression. Mm -hmm. Um, Before the pandemic, and I tried to reach her, Dr. Jen Ashton, I think, who's the ABC medical correspondent, talked about her ex-husband having died by suicide and on air she said and he didn't fit any of the criteria for depression and those are the people I'm talking about those are the pe- criteria for depression are depressed mood that is noticeable and is a change of behavior and anhedonia or and or anhedonia the lack of pleasure in previously pleasurable activities if if one of those is not present you're not diagnosable as being depressed And with these people, they wouldn't look like that at all. (laughs) They wouldn't tell you, oh, no, I'm, you know, got lots of blessings. I'm doing great. I just have this one little nagging something. And so I started doing my research. I found academic research on this link between different types of perfectionism and the tendency towards suicidality. Of course, our suicide rates are growing exponentially. And I think, I know, actually, that perfectionism is causing some of those. And so do the researchers. I know that because it's been found in the research. It's not my idea. And so I decided to write a book. And with New Harbinger's publications help and great, great help, I published a book. Five years later, I published Berkeley and Depression. Yeah. Well, here you are. You're a doctor. You're a psychologist. You are a therapist. You're a blogger and podcaster. Mm -hmm. Now an author. So that's, that's awesome. Thank you. I'm probably leaving a few things out too. <laughs> but I want to shift gears a little bit here. Good uh, cook. <laughs> uh, too bad I can't taste it. <laughs> I want to shift gears a little bit, Margaret. Some rapid fire questions just to kind of get a little bit more depth about, about you, if you don't mind. That's fine. All right. Sure. So here we go. Favorite day of the week? Mm, Thursday. Favorite junk food? Potato chips. What cheers you up? Laughter. Was there a chore you really hated doing as a child? I hated making my bed. <laughs> what kind of books do you like to read? Ones with lots of twists and turns. I don't like horror things, but I like a really in-depth story. Got it. What's the most beautiful place you've ever been? Paris. If you had to live in a different state, what would it be? Washington. What game are you really good at? 
I'm I'm good at spelling games. There's a, some kind of spelling game that's out there, and I'm really good at spelling. You make Scrabble? Yeah, Scrabble, or there's another one, too. I've forgotten it right now, but it's a spelling game. Would you rather not brush your hair ever or your teeth? <laughs> oh, hair. Mm, i got to brush those teeth. <laughs> and finally, this is very appropriate for you. If you could sing one song on American Idol, what would it be? I know exactly what it would be. Isn't it real? Are we a pair? You hear it last on the ground, me in midair, send in the clowns. I got to sing that. <laughs> wow, that's the first time I had someone sing on my podcast. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of that song? Uh, send in the clowns. Send in the clowns, that's right. Well, that's it. Thank you very much, Margaret. Where can listeners go to reach you and learn more about you? Oh, I'm all over the place. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com. And you can really see almost everything I do there. My podcast is the Self Work Podcast with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Player FM, you know, whatever. I'm on Instagram. My book is called, again, Perfectly Hidden Depression. It's at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. But give your local bookstore a, a help out and yeah. they will not have it on their shelves, I'm sure. But I also want to point out that the book has over 60 exercises in it. So it, over 60. So it is a it is a guidebook, really. Like on a yeah, it's a workbook. They just didn't want to call it that for some reason. And so, anyway, it's it's meant for you to use as a guide for yourself. So that's that's what it's for. And like I say, I, I'm on Instagram, and I would love to have your listeners uh, give me a shout out. Are people able to reach out to you even if they are not in Arkansas? I, at the current time, I cannot see anybody in therapy that's not residing in the state of Arkansas. The legislature just this year is looking at a thing called SIPACT that perhaps they'll be able to after that uh, in certain states, but currently, no. I see. But you could still obviously have a lot of resources that you can provide people if they go on. 114 free podcasts. So <laughs> that'd be pretty good. Very nice. Well, thank you, Margaret. I really appreciate you coming on this episode. It's been great to talk to you. You too. Take care. All right, everybody. That's our show today. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about today's guests or other past guests, just check out my website, healthcareerswithdrmar.com or hcwithdrmar.com. Of course, if you like what you heard on this podcast, then please go to my website, Add your name and email to my email list. That way you can get the latest announcements and news as they arise. You can also find me on Instagram at drrichardmarn. That's Dr. Richard Marn. Thank you so much for listening and catch you on the next episode.